This is Chapter Twenty One of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter Twenty One. We were approaching the end of our long journey. It was the morning of the twentieth day. At noon, we would reach Carson City, the capital of Nevada Territory. We were not glad, but sorry. It has been a fine pleasure trip. We had fed fat on wonders every day. We were now well accustomed to stage life, and very fond of it. So the idea of coming to a standstill and settling down to a humdrum existence in a village was not agreeable, but on the contrary depressing. Visibly our new home was a desert, walled in by barren snow-clad mountains. There was not a tree in sight. There was no vegetation but the endless sagebrush and greasewood. All nature was gray with it. We were plowing through great deeps of powdery alkali dust that rose in thick clouds and floated across the plain like smoke from a burning house. We were coated with it like millers. So were the coach, the mules, the mail bags, the driver. We and the sagebrush and the other scenery were all one monotonous color. Long trains of freight wagons in the distance, envelope in ascending masses of dust, suggested pictures of prairies on fire. These teams and their masters were the only life we saw. Otherwise, we moved in the midst of solitude, silence, and desolation. Every twenty steps, we passed the skeleton of some dead beast of burthen, with its dust-coated skin stretched tightly over its empty ribs. Frequently, a solemn raven sat upon the skull or the hips and contemplated the passing coach with its meditative serenity. By and by, Carson City was pointed out to us. It nestled in the edge of a great plain and was a sufficient number of miles away to look like an assemblage of mere white spots in the shadow of a grim range of mountains overlooking it, whose summits seemed lifted clear out of companionship and consciousness of earthly things. We arrived. Disembarked, and the stage went on. It was a wooden town, its population two thousand souls. The main street consisted of four or five blocks of little white frame stores, which were too high to sit down on, but not too high for various other purposes. In fact, hardly high enough. They were packed close together, side by side, as if room were scarce in that mighty plain. The sidewalk was of boards that were more or less loose and inclined to rattle when walked upon. In the middle of the town, opposite the stores, was the plaza, which is native to all towns beyond the Rocky Mountains, a large, unfenced, level vacancy with a liberty pole in it, and very useful as a place for public auctions, horse trades, and mass meetings, and likewise for teamsters to camp in. Two other sides of the plaza were faced by stores, offices, and stables. The rest of Carson City was pretty scattering. We were introduced to several citizens, at the stage office and on the way up to the governor's from the hotel, among others, to a Mr. Harris, who was on horseback. He began to say something, but interrupted himself with the remark, "'I'll have to get you to excuse me a minute. Yonder is the witness that swore I helped to rob the California coach. A piece of impertinent intermeddling, sir, for I am not even acquainted with the man.' Then he rode over and began to rebuke the stranger with a six-shooter, and the stranger began to explain with another. When the pistols were emptied, the stranger resumed his work, mending a whiplash, and Mr. Harris rode by with a polite nod, homeward bound, with a bullet through one of his lungs, and several in his hips. 
and from them issued little rivulets of blood that coursed down the horse's sides and made the animal look quite picturesque. I never saw Harris shoot a man after that, but it recalled to mind that first day in Carson. This was all we saw that day, for it was two o'clock now, and according to custom the daily Washoe Zephyr set in. A soaring dust-drift about the size of the United States set up edgewise came with it, and the capital of Nevada Territory disappeared from view. Still, there were sights to be seen which were not wholly uninteresting to newcomers, for the vast dust-cloud was thickly freckled with things strange to the upper air, things living and dead, that flitted hither and thither, coming and going, appearing and disappearing among the rolling billows of dust hats, chickens, and parasols sailing in the remote heavens, blankets, tin signs, sagebrush, and shingles a shade lower, doormats and buffalo robes lower still, shovels and coal-scuttles on the next grade, glass doors, cats and little children on the next, disrupted lumber-yards, light buggies and wheelbarrows on the next, and down only thirty or forty feet above ground was a scurrying storm of emigrating roofs and vacant lots. It was something to see that much. I could have seen more if I could have kept the dust out of my eyes. But seriously, a washoe wind is by no means a trifling matter. It blows flimsy houses down, lifts shingle roofs occasionally, rolls up tin ones like sheet music, now and then blows a stagecoach over and spills the passengers. And tradition says the reason there are so many bald people there is that the wind blows the hair off their heads while they are looking skyward after their hats. Carson streets seldom look inactive on summer afternoons, because there are so many citizens skipping around their escaping hats like chambermaids trying to head off a spider. The Washoe Zephyr—Washoe is a pet nickname for Nevada—is a peculiar scriptural wind, in that no man knoweth whence it cometh, that is to say, where it originates. It comes right over the mountains from the west, but when one crosses the ridge he does not find any of it on the other side. It probably is manufactured on the mountain-top for the occasion, and starts from there. It is a pretty regular wind in the summer-time. Its office hours are from two in the afternoon till two the next morning, and anybody venturing abroad during those twelve hours needs to allow for the wind, or he will bring up a mile or two to leeward of the point he is aiming at. And yet the first complaint a Washoe visitor to San Francisco makes is that the sea-winds blow so there. There is a good deal of human nature in that. We found the state palace of the governor of Nevada Territory to consist of a white-frame one-story house with two small rooms in it and a stanchion-supported shed in front for grandeur. It compelled the respect of the citizen and inspired the Indians with awe. The newly arrived chief and associate justices of the territory and other machinery of the government were domiciled with less splendor. They were boarding around privately and had their offices in their bedrooms. The secretary and I took quarters in the ranch of a worthy French lady by the name of Bridget O'Flanagan, a camp follower of His Excellency the Governor. She had known him in his prosperity as commander-in-chief of the Metropolitan Police of New York, and she would not desert him in his adversity as Governor of Nevada. Our room was on the lower floor, facing the plaza, and when we had got our bed, a small table, two chairs, the government fireproof safe, and the unabridged dictionary into it, there was still room enough left for a visitor, maybe two, but not without straining the walls. But the walls could stand it, at least the partitions could, 
for they consisted simply of one thickness of white cotton domestic stretched from corner to corner of the room. This was the rule in Carson. Any other kind of partition was the rare exception, and if you stood in a dark corner and your neighbors in the next had lights, the shadows on your canvas told queer secrets sometimes. Very often these partitions were made of old flour sacks basted together, and then the difference between the common herd and the aristocracy was that the common herd had unornamented sacks, while the walls of the aristocrat were overpowering with rudimental fresco, i.e., red and blue mill-brands on the flour sacks. Occasionally, also, the better classes embellished their canvas by pasting pictures from Harper's Weekly on them. In many cases, too, the wealthy and the cultured rose to spittoons and other evidences of a sumptuous and luxurious taste. Washoe people take a joke so hard that I must explain that the above description was only the rule. There were many honorable exceptions in Carson plastered ceilings and houses that had considerable furniture in them. M.T. We had a carpet and a genuine Queensware washbowl. Consequently, we were hated without reserve by the other tenants of the O'Flanagan Ranch. When we added a painted oilcloth window curtain, we simply took our lives into our own hands. To prevent bloodshed, I removed upstairs, and took quarters with the untitled plebeians in one of the fourteen white pine cot bedsteads that stood in two long ranks in the one sole room of which the second story consisted. It was a jolly company, the fourteen. They were principally voluntary camp followers of the governor, who had joined his retinue by their own election at New York and San Francisco, and came along feeling that in the scuffle for little territorial crumbs and offices they could not make their condition more precarious than it was, and might reasonably expect to make it better. They were popularly known as the Irish Brigade, though there were only four or five Irishmen among all the governor's retainers. His good-natured excellency was much annoyed at the gossip his henchmen created, especially when there arose a rumor that they were paid assassins of his, brought along to quietly reduce the democratic vote when desirable. Mrs. O'Flanagan was boarding and lodging them at ten dollars a week apiece, and they were cheerfully giving their notes for it. They were perfectly satisfied, but Bridget presently found that notes that could not be discounted were but a feeble constitution for a Carson boarding-house, so she began to harry the governor to find employment for the brigade. Her importunities and theirs together drove him to a gentle desperation at last, and he finally summoned the brigade to the presence. Then he said, "'Gentlemen, I have planned a lucrative and useful service for you. A service which will provide you with recreation amid noble landscapes, and afford you never-ceasing opportunities for enriching your minds by observation and study. I want you to survey a railroad from Carson City westward to a certain point. When the legislature meets, I will have the necessary bill passed, and the remuneration arranged. What, a railroad over the Sierra Nevada mountains? Well, then, survey it eastward to a certain point he converted them into surveyors, chain-bearers, and so on, and turned them loose in the desert. It was recreation with a vengeance. Recreation on foot, lugging chains through sand and sagebrush, under a sultry sun, and among cattle-bones, coyotes, and tarantulas. Romantic adventure could go no further. They surveyed very slowly, very deliberately, very carefully. They returned every night during the first week, dusty, footsore, tired, and hungry, but very jolly. 
they brought in great store of prodigious hairy spiders, tarantulas, and imprisoned them in covered tumblers upstairs in the ranch. After the first week they had to camp on the field, for they were getting well eastward. They made a good many inquiries as to the location of that indefinite certain point, but got no information. At last, to a peculiarly urgent inquiry of how far eastward, Governor Nye telegraphed back, "'To the Atlantic Ocean, blast you! And then bridge it and go on!' This brought back the dusty toilers, who sent in a report and ceased from their labors. The Governor was always comfortable about it. He said Mrs. O'Flanagan would hold him for the brigade's board anyhow, and he intended to get what entertainment he could out of the boys. He said with his old-time pleasant twinkle that he meant to survey them into Utah and then telegraph Brigham to hang them for trespass. The surveyors brought back more tarantulas with them, and so we had quite a menagerie arranged along the shelves of the room. Some of these spiders could straddle over a common saucer with their hairy muscular legs, and when their feelings were hurt, or their dignity offended, they were the wickedest-looking desperadoes the animal world can furnish. If their glass prison-houses were touched ever so lightly, they were up and spoiling for a fight in a minute. Starchy? Proud? Indeed, they would take up a straw and pick their teeth like a member of Congress. There was, as usual, a furious zephyr blowing the first night of the brigade's return, and about midnight the roof of an adjoining stable blew off, and a corner of it came crashing through the side of our ranch. There was a simultaneous awakening, and a tumultuous muster of the brigade in the dark, and a general tumbling and sprawling over each other in the narrow aisle between the bedrows. In the midst of the turmoil, Bob H. sprung up out of a sound sleep, and knocked down a shelf with his head. Instantly he shouted, "'Turn out, boys! The tarantulas is loose!' No warning ever sounded so dreadful. Nobody tried any longer to leave the room, lest he might step on a tarantula. Every man groped for a trunk or a bed, and jumped on it. Then followed the strangest silence. A silence of grisly suspense it was, too. Waiting, expectancy, fear. It was as dark as pitch, and one had to imagine the spectacle of those fourteen scant-clad men roosting gingerly on trunks and beds, for not a thing could be seen. Then came occasional little interruptions of the silence, and one could recognize a man, and tell his locality by his voice, or locate any other sound a sufferer made by his gropings or changes of position. The occasional voices were not given to much speaking. You simply heard a gentle ejaculation of OW, followed by a solid thump, and you knew the gentleman had felt a hairy blanket, or something touch his bare skin, and had skipped from a bed to the floor. Another silence. Presently you would hear a gasping voice say, S -s something's crawling up the back of my neck. Every now and then you could hear a little subdued scramble and a sorrowful, Oh, Lord! And then you knew that somebody was getting away from something he took for a tarantula, and not losing any time about it, either. Directly a voice in the corner rang out, wild and clear, I've got him! I've got him! Pause, and probable change of circumstances. No! No, he's got me! Oh, ain't they never going to fetch a lantern? The lantern came at that moment in the hands of Mrs. O'Flanagan, whose anxiety to know the amount of damage done by the assaulting roof had not prevented her waiting a judicious interval, after getting out of bed and lighting up, to see if the wind was done now, upstairs, or had a larger contract. The landscape presented when the lantern flashed into the room was picturesque, and might have been funny to some people, but was not to us. Although we were perched so strangely upon boxes, 
trunks, and beds, and so strangely attired, too, we were too earnestly distressed and too genuinely miserable to see any fun about it, and there was not the semblance of a smile anywhere visible. I know I am not capable of suffering more than I did during those few minutes of suspense in the dark, surrounded by those creeping, bloody-minded tarantulas. I had skipped from bed to bed and from box to box in a cold agony, and every time I touched anything that was furzy, I fancied I felt the fangs. I had rather go to war than live that episode over again. Nobody was hurt. The man who thought a tarantula had got him was mistaken. Only a crack in a box had caught his finger. Not one of those escaped tarantulas was ever seen again. There were ten or twelve of them. We took candles and hunted the place high and low for them, but with no success. Did we go back to bed, then? We did nothing of the kind. Money could not have persuaded us to do it. We sat up the rest of the night playing cribbage and keeping a sharp lookout for the enemy. End of chapter 22